following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. All right, it's James time. Time for James. We are starting a new series in the book of James and a couple of housekeeping things before we get into that. We're going to take up an offering now. So uh, the, the ushers are going to pass around the offering bags. We take up this offering every week for the work of the church. Thank you to those of you that give faithfully um, to our church. We really appreciate it. Uh, so with this series that we're starting on James, a couple of other ways besides the Sunday mornings that you can connect into this series. Uh, one is through the study sheets. So at the back there, there's a blue box. And each week in that blue box, there'll be a study sheet. Uh, and I'll do those study sheets as I'm preparing the messages. So they'll key in with each message. And by the Friday before the message, we'll put them up online. And on the Sunday, they'll be there in the, uh, in the blue box. So shaw.org.nz forward slash teaching is where you can grab those. And if you want to follow up, do some follow-up study on your own. If you want to chew over that in your life group, uh, trying to draw out the application. It's a real application book. James, hopefully you're getting that. Uh, those of you that have read through it, it's, it's full of good, practical, real-life wisdom. And uh, those questions will just help you really tease it out in terms of how this speaks into the situations that we're facing in our lives. The other thing is to buy the companion guide to James. I think that notice is still in your bulletin there, a little commentary, a little companion guide. And uh, the, the name of that book might be confusing, but it's, it's called Early Christian Letters for everyone. So the title doesn't actually say James, but it covers James as well as First and Second Peter, as well as First, Second and Third John, as well as Jude. So there's a lot in there, small little book. Uh, so you get a lot for your money, but we're obviously focusing on James, but early Christian letters for everyone. If you want to buy that, it'll help you again, just digest what we're talking about and get into the passages, get into the text even more. Okay, so the book of James. Here we go. Now, when we come to this book of the Bible, the book of James. We're coming to a book of the Bible that's had a bit of a rough history. Poor old James, you know, he, he's had a bit of a hard time down through the centuries. And I don't know how much of this you're aware of, but the book of James only just made it into the Bible. So for the first few hundred years after James wrote this letter, it wasn't really considered part of the Bible. Uh, and it certainly wasn't considered equal to other books in the Bible. And it, I mean, it was circulated and it was read and people appreciated it and they, they saw the wisdom in it, they saw the value in it. It's just that it wasn't, for a long time, it wasn't considered fully Scripture. It wasn't, wasn't fully part of the Bible as such. And a large part of that has to do with the fact that James wasn't counted among the apostles he wasn't officially part of that circle of apostles like Peter and John were and Paul kind of. So he wasn't in that. And one of the criteria for accepting books of the Bible into Scripture is they needed to be written by an apostle or someone close to an apostle. So James had a bit of a hard time getting in there. And in the, in the earliest collections of the New Testament, James wasn't there. It wasn't until about the 4th century that James, the book of James was, was finally added to the canon of Scripture. And even then, not without controversy. There were still dissenting voices, but then finally James has made it into the collection and he's been there ever since. So he had a hard time getting in in the first place, and then he's had a bit of a hard time staying in the Bible as well, because you get all the way to the 16th century, to the Reformation. You remember we talked about the Reformation last year? We did that series and we met our friend Martin Luther, good old Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, you know, the, the great champion of sola scriptura and the word of God alone and the importance of the scriptures, he was all about that. And so you would think, that Luther 
would have some really good things to say about James. Well, here's what he said. An epistle of straw. I cannot include him among the chief books, though I would not prevent anyone from including or extolling as he pleases, for there are otherwise many good sayings in him. That's not exactly a, an overwhelming compliment. And I'm sure Luther and James are having a good old laugh about that now in heaven, but he wasn't exactly glowing in his endorsement of James. And for Luther, the issue was that he had a really hard time reconciling James with Paul. And Luther was so committed to Paul, uh, particularly Romans, Galatians, he just couldn't see, because James talks about works, particularly chapter 2, and Luther just couldn't get his head around it. He just saw this contradiction there. And so as a result, he didn't throw James out, but he really relegated him to a much lower place in the, in, in the Scriptures than these other books of, of Paul. Um, thankfully, Luther's view didn't win the day. And there were many other people, many other reformers that had a much higher view of James than he did. For example, John Calvin says this, I am fully content to accept this epistle when I find it contains nothing unworthy of an apostle of Christ. Indeed, it is a rich source of varied instruction, of abundant benefit in all aspects of the Christian life. That's more like it. So John Calvin is saying... This book is totally consistent with the teaching of the apostles. There's nothing here that's not apostolic. There's nothing here that's contradicting other parts of the Bible. James is fully scripture. It's fully the word of God. It deserves to be there. It belongs in the Bible, and it's got a lot to teach us. It is a rich source of varied instruction in the Christian life. And so... Poor old James, he's had a bit of a hard time over the centuries. He's, he's been a bit neglected. Even today, he's a little bit neglected, I think, all the way at the back of the Bible. You know, you've got big old Hebrews there, and then James tucked away. He gets a bit of a hard time. But we're going to bring James out of obscurity, okay? In this series, we're going to bring him out of the shadows. We're going to bring him out of the darkness. We're going to bring him back front and center and learn from what James says, because there is a lot that James has to teach us. And we believe that this is fully part of Scripture, that James is is part of the Word of God, and therefore this is a letter, an important part of Scripture, through which God is going to speak to us, right? Through which God spoke to His people centuries ago, millennia ago, and through which He is going to continue to speak to us today. The Spirit of God is going to continue to speak to us through the book of James. We believe that. That's the basis on which we're doing this study in James. So, with all that said, here's what I want to do today. This morning, we are just going to look at one verse in James, okay? I promise we'll pick up the pace. After this, it's not going to be a verse a week. Otherwise, we'd be here for decades. But we are just going to do one verse. We're just going to do James 1, verse 1. James chapter 1, verse 1 today. Okay, that's it. So if you've got a Bible or you've got your Bible on the device, pull it open, get it up. Uh, James 1, 1, that's where we're going to be. It is just after Hebrews. It really is towards the end. It's after Hebrews. There's a cluster of little letters there before you get to Revelation. James is tucked in there. So go ahead and open that up. And we are just going to look at the first verse this morning. Are we, are we ready? We're all there? Good to go? Words are on screen if you don't have a Bible, but it's good to have a Bible in your hand. Here we go. James chapter 1, verse 1. James. All right, let's stop there. James. That's enough, that's enough for today. James. Now, the, 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 the really important question here is, who is this guy? Who's James? What's his story? It's the only letter in the Bible that's got his name at the front of it. Who's James? Well, the most important thing you need to know about James is that he was the brother of Jesus. Okay, that's the big deal. He was the brother of Jesus. At least he was as close as you could be to being the brother of Jesus, given that Jesus didn't have a biological father. So some people say half-brother, but he was the brother. I mean, he was the son of Mary and Joseph. 
just like Jesus was. He was in the family. He was part of the same biological family as Jesus. He was the brother of Jesus. That alone makes James a really interesting person to listen to, doesn't it? I mean, that perspective, having grown up with Jesus, that, I mean, that's unique. We want to understand what that is like. What James has got to say is valuable because he was the brother of Jesus. He was in the family. Now, the first time that we meet James in the New Testament is in Mark chapter 6. I'm going to roll through a bunch of verses pretty quickly this morning. You can either follow with this or you can just look on screen. It doesn't matter. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, it says this, Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, what's interesting here, I think, and I didn't realize this until I started studying this, but James and Jesus were two of at least seven siblings. I didn't know that. So you've got it's quite a big family. Now, obviously, Jesus is the, the oldest child. And then we don't know where James was in the birth order, but we know there was James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And then it says his sisters, of which there must have been then at least two, could have been more. So there could be more than seven siblings, but at least seven siblings. And so James is somewhere either second in the birth order, anywhere from there onwards, but in this big family. I mean, that's a big family. We've got three boys. That's chaotic. There's a family of seven, at least seven. Could be eight, could be nine. We don't know. Big family, a lot of kids, boys and girls. So James and Jesus grew up in a big family, in a busy home, in a turbulent, kind of chaotic, you know, noisy, busy kind of home life. This is how we've got a picture, James and Jesus growing up. And I want you to think for a minute, this is just kind of an imaginative exercise. I want you to think about what life might have been like for James growing up as a, as a boy with Jesus as your older brother. I mean, imagine that. So we've got three boys, and there's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of bickering. There's a lot of arguing. It's relentless. It's exhausting. And one of the most common scenarios is that one of our boys will come to us, often Lawson, our middle boy, and he'll say something like, Ezra hit me, or Ezra threw some Lego at me, or something like this. Ezra's done something to me. And so we go and get Ezra, and we say... What did you do to your brother? And Ezra, without fail, will always say, well, he called me an idiot. Or he pushed me. So he, he doesn't answer the question. And we'll say, no, no, no. What did you do to your brother? I don't want to know what he did. I want to know what you did. And he said, but he called me an idiot. No, I don't want to know what he did. I just want to ask you what you did. And this can go on for minutes. And he won't answer the question. He will just continually say, but he did, but he did, but he did. And then finally, we might get it out of him. Oh, I, I did push him. Oh, I did throw some Lego at him. Right, you naughty corner. And we go back to Lawson, you off to the naughty corner. And we get like, four, the, the naughty corner time is the best time. It's like four minutes of peace. It's amazing. <laughs> so they're in the naughty corner and we try and finally settle this thing. Now, imagine that scenario playing out with James and Jesus. So Jesus comes to Mary and says, James, hit me. And so Mary goes over to James and says, James, what did you do to your brother? And he says, well, Jesus called me an idiot. And Mary's going to say, no, James, I don't think he did. Because <laughs> Jesus has never done anything wrong in his life. I don't think he called you an idiot. He just doesn't do that kind of thing. right? And James, got, he's got no comeback to that. He's got nothing because Jesus was always so squeaky clean. 
You just couldn't pin anything on him. You couldn't blame him. You couldn't use him as a scapegoat, you know? And so, I mean, this is the kind of world that James grew up in. Obviously, there were a lot of great things about having Jesus as your older brother as well. I mean, James could have hit him as many times as he wanted to. Jesus just turns the other cheek, you know, just, <laughs> just keeps on punching him. But it would have been a challenge, I think, for James in some ways. And then at the same time, James has got this older brother who just would have been so kind, wouldn't he? I mean, you just imagine Jesus. He would have been the golden boy in a lot of ways. And of course, Jesus was fully human, right? We're not, don't diminish that. But he would have been just so selfless, such a great older brother, so protective. Just think about the way he would have treated James, you know, just so sharing and selfless. It would have been amazing for James, I think, growing up in that kind of home. So it would have been an interesting childhood, coming, growing up with Jesus and then all these other brothers and sisters as well. And this is James's experience. So then we get to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And you can imagine, we don't know a lot of details, but you can imagine James would have looked on as Jesus was baptized and then began this career as a kind of traveling rabbi, as a traveling preacher, going around these towns and villages, teaching and preaching and, and apparently healing and doing all of these miracles. But the interesting thing is that all, for all of Jesus' public ministry, in fact, the whole time before Jesus' death, James refuses to believe in Jesus, refuses to believe that he is the Messiah, refuses to believe that he is the Savior. James keeps his distance, and he does not become one of Jesus' followers. He does not become a disciple. It's said very clearly in John chapter 7, verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. That includes James. So James and his brothers, and presumably his sisters, I guess it was just too much for them. We don't know exactly why, but it must have just been too hard for them to get their heads around this idea that the, that the elder brother... Jesus, the one they'd kind of sat next to at the dinner table for years and years and years and years, the one they'd played in the streets with, that he could be the Messiah of Israel, that he could be the Son of God. You know, when Jesus goes around saying things like, I and the Father are one, you know, placing himself on par with God. You can imagine for James, it's like, but this is, it's, just, it's just too much for him. He just can't wrap his, his head around this. And so James keeps him at arm's length. James refuses to place his faith in Jesus. During this time. In fact, there's even an incident in the Gospels where Jesus' family comes along and tries to take him away. They think he's insane. They literally think he has gone crazy and lost his mind. They come to take him back to the house so they can try and get him some treatment, calm him down, talk some sense into him. They, they just think he's out of his mind. They, they do not want to become his followers. So that's, that's James. For three or four years during Jesus' ministry, he's not in the circle of followers. He's not a disciple. He's resisting. He's rejecting it. And this goes all the way to the death of Jesus. You think about the cross when Jesus dies and the crucifixion. Where's James? Well, he's not there. Not as far as we know anyway. No mention of him. We know Mary's there, but James isn't there. And it's interesting, isn't it? When Jesus comes to give charge of his mother to someone, to ask someone to look after his mum after he's died, who does he choose? John. It's not James. He doesn't even choose one of his own biological siblings. He chooses John. You imagine how that went down with James. But it shows you the weight that Jesus placed on his spiritual family, even over his biological family, that he would rather entrust the care of his mother to one of his spiritual brothers, even if it's not one of his natural 
brothers. And that must have been hard for his brothers to take. James is watching on as as, his mum goes and lives with one of Jesus' friends rather than with him or one of his brothers. That must have been hard, but this is what Jesus is saying. These are my brothers and sisters, those who do the will of God. That's what Jesus said. So James is not a follower of Jesus all the way up to the cross through the death of Jesus. But then there is this amazing moment. Just flick over to 1 Corinthians 15. And here's Paul now writing about the resurrection of Jesus. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James. Isn't that great? Then to all the apostles. And last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Isn't it interesting that Paul specifically says, then he appeared to James. Jesus appears to over 500 people after his resurrection. Only two are mentioned by name. Peter, that's obvious. He's he's the lead disciple. And James, not even a believer previously, not even wanting to be part of this whole deal. But then Jesus appears to James. And, And I think, we can't prove it, but I think that was the moment when James became a believer. And you can only imagine what that moment must have been like. That is, Jesus appears there. Now the risen, resurrected Jesus appears to his brother, James. And he holds out those nail-scarred hands and maybe says something like, my brother, will you now believe? And that was the moment. And that's what it took for James. Wouldn't believe when he saw Jesus preaching, wouldn't believe when he saw the miracles, wouldn't believe even at the cross, but when he sees his brother raised from the dead, finally, he places his faith in Jesus, becomes a believer. And from that moment on, James is counted among the disciples of Jesus, among the followers of Jesus. He's part of that group. So we get all the way over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. Verse 14 says, They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And so there's James. And it seems like what's happened is James has become a believer, and then he's gone off and told his brothers. He's gone off and told Simon and Judas and Joseph. He's like, you've got to believe this. I've seen Jesus. He's he's raised from the dead. That's the proof we need. And his brothers have become believers. Maybe his sisters too. And now there they are with Mary. We don't know about Joseph, interestingly. We don't know about Jesus' father, James' father. We don't know what's happened to him, but Mary's there, the brothers are there, and they're all believers now. They're in Jerusalem waiting in the upper room. They all receive the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They all become part of the church. And so from that point, James becomes one of the key leaders in the early church. He becomes a pillar of the early church. And and James's role, his position in the church, is that he is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. That's his role. That's his office. So the Jerusalem church was like the mother church of the whole Christian movement. That's where it started. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people get saved. They're in Jerusalem. That's where the church starts. And then from there, the Jerusalem church is sending people out and planting other churches and believers are being scattered, but it's all coming from the mother church in Jerusalem. So it was a very significant, very important church. And James is the leader of that community. So he's a pastor. He's a shepherd of this church. It's a very Jewish ministry because he's in Jerusalem and he's ministering to his own people. And you can just imagine so much of James's ministry 
must have been trying to encourage his fellow Jews, his, his countrymen, to go on the journey that he's gone on and finally realise that Jesus is the Messiah. And he would have been able to relate to them because for so long he refused to believe, even though Jesus was his brother. For so long he rejected Jesus, even though he was his brother. And he would be pleading and begging with his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters to come on the same journey and place their faith in Jesus to recognise that this man, James's brother, he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. This is the one we've been waiting for. You've got to place your faith in him. So James has got a very Jewish ministry. It's probably almost an exclusively Jewish church that he's pastoring. And so that helps explain when you come to read the book of James, it's got a very Jewish flavor to it. And there's a lot of resonance there with the Jewish law and traditions and customs and so on because James was steeped in this. He wasn't he still believed in Jesus and everything for him was configured around Jesus, but he still had those strong, deep Jewish roots. All right, now, wrapping up the profile of James's life, he shepherded that church in Jerusalem all the way through to AD 62, and that's where James died. We know he died that year, it's historically recorded AD 62, and he was martyred, he was executed by the Jewish leaders. They'd finally had enough of him. Finally got sick of him, got sick of the church, got sick of all these Christians running around, got sick of them probably persuading Jews to come out of the synagogue and become followers of Jesus, the Messiah. And so they hatched a plan and they executed James. And the way they executed him was pretty horrendous, actually. They pushed him off the temple wall and he landed but didn't die. And so then they picked up rocks and threw them at him, stoned him until they finished him off. So again, this is recorded History, that's how James died, a pretty gruesome, awful death. And so James is counted among the martyrs. He's counted among the early Christian martyrs, gave his life for Jesus, gave his life for his faith, and remained faithful to Christ right up to the end. Even after years of unbelief, once he turned towards Jesus, he never let go, and he faithfully carried on his ministry, faithfully carried on his calling, ran the race, finished the race, fought the good fight all the way to his death in AD 62. So I want to read you a little reflection on the life of James, and this is by a church historian called Eusebius. He's writing in the 4th century, so quite a long time after James has lived, but he's drawing on some earlier strands of history, some earlier historians who were around at the time, and talking about who James was. So here's his reflection on James. He has been called the just by all from the time of our Saviour to the present day. For there were many that bore the name of James. He was holy from his mother's womb, and he drank no wine nor strong drink, nor did he eat flesh. No razor came upon his head. He did not anoint himself with oil, and he did not use the bath. Sounds like our boys. He alone was permitted to enter the holy place, for he wore not woolen but linen garments, and he was in the habit of entering alone into the temple and was frequently found upon his knees begging forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard like those of a camel in consequence of his constantly bending them in worship of God and asking forgiveness for the people. So a couple of things there that we glean about the life of James. First of all, he had this nickname, James the Just. And that word just is not quite the, the same in English as it was in Greek. Really, it means righteous. That would be a better translation. James the Righteous. And it speaks to the fact that James had the character of his brother Jesus. 
that he allowed God to cultivate in him this character of righteousness, that he was a man of godliness, he was a man of holiness, he was a man of integrity, he was upright in heart, he had this mature Christian character, and he sought to emulate his brother Jesus. This was, this was known by many, many people. James had this reputation of being a man of righteousness, an upstanding member of the Christian community who pursued Jesus, who loved Jesus, who wanted nothing more than to be like Jesus. He was James the just, James the righteous. And then he had this other nickname, Camel Knees, because he spent so long, apparently, in prayer on his knees, crying out to God, praying to God, praying for his people, praying for the Jewish people, that his knees became hard and calloused like camel knees. And man, that's a testimony to the power of prayer, isn't it? That's a testimony to a, to a, a life of prayer. That James spent so many hours on his knees, pray, and not just praying for himself, praying for his people. And you can just imagine him crying out for his Jewish brothers and sisters, praying for God's forgiveness, that they'd turned away from the Messiah, asking God to forgive them and to turn their hearts. And he would just be praying hour after hour after hour on his knees. You think about like, how does that stack up to your prayer life? How does that stack up to my prayer life? Pretty shabby, right? I mean, we, we pray a quick little prayer at the beginning of the day. God, help me through the day, please. And a quick little grace before dinner. Lord, thank you for this meal and we're done. That's not gonna give you camel knees, is it? It's not exactly gonna develop calluses on your knees. James is on his knees hour after hour after. I mean, this is not, it's not a fairy tale. It's not imagination. Like this was who he was. He was a man of prayer and you can see how he developed the character of righteousness because he spent so much time in prayer. And in fact, you can hear in, in the letter, in this epistle of James, you can hear these resonances of his character. There's a verse in uh, I think it's chapter five where James says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And it's so interesting, that word righteous is the same word as just. It's the word James was known by. James the just, James the righteous. And he says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. See, James is not just handing out good advice. He's living it. He writes things like that it's because it's coming from his life, because it's emanating from the core of who he is. He pursued righteousness. He hungered after righteousness, and he lived on his knees, crying out for God to speak and move and work. The prayer of a righteous man. He knew it firsthand. It's powerful and effective. And so that's James. And all that is just a summary of the first word in the book. So we haven't gone very far yet, but let me just, in the, in the few minutes that we've got, just touch on the rest of this verse so we get our bearings, get a little bit of an orientation to this book. James. And look how he describes himself here in the first verse. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, see if I was James, here's how I would start the letter. James, the brother of Jesus. Right? I mean, that's the pedigree. That's, that's the big deal. He was the brother of Jesus. No other writer of Scripture could say that. I'm the brother of Jesus. I mean, that's, I would put that at the top of every letter, every argument I had with anyone. It would always be like, I understand where you're coming from. Thank you for your perspective, but I'm the brother of Jesus. <laughs> Case closed. That's the trump card. That's it. No more response. I'm the brother of Jesus. So why did he not put it at the beginning of his letter? Because James, he goes the opposite direction. And all he wants us to know, he doesn't say anything about being the brother of Jesus. All he wants us to know is I'm a servant. 
In fact, the word is stronger. It's, the, it's doulos, which means slave. He says, all you need to know about me. It's not being the brother of Jesus. That's not the big deal. Here's what you need to know about me. I'm a slave. I'm a slave to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. James came to see himself as a, sla- a spiritual slave to his elder brother, Jesus. He really came to see Jesus, I think, as his elder brother in two senses, as his biological elder brother and as his spiritual elder brother who had died for him to give him new life. And now he was perfectly happy to submit his life to Jesus, come under the authority of Jesus, surrender his life. All he wanted was to be a servant. All he wanted was to be a slave. I think this very first phrase in the book speaks powerfully to the humility of this man, James, that he would describe himself not as the brother of Jesus, but as a servant, as a slave to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing. And then he says to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Well, the 12 tribes, that's a reference to Israel. It's a reference to the Jewish people. It's not literal because there weren't literally 12 tribes at this point. They'd been so dispersed uh, through the world, they, didn't, they weren't really coherent tribes, but it's a designation for Israel. So James is saying this letter is written primarily to a Jewish audience. It's written primarily to Jewish believers. So today we'd call them Messianic Jews. Jews, Jewish people, ethnic Jews, who have become followers of Jesus, follow Jesus Messiah. And so James is writing, it's very natural given his ministry in Jerusalem to the Jewish church. He's writing primarily to Jewish Christians. That doesn't mean those of us that aren't Jews can't learn from this. Of course we can but the audience, the original audience James is writing to is Messianic Jews. And he says to the 12 tribes, scattered among the nations. So he's not writing to his home church. He's not writing to his local congregation, but he's writing to this broader group of people. Literally, the Greek word there is the word diaspora. Diaspora. And, and people still use that word today. You talk about the Kiwi diaspora, all the Kiwis living outside New Zealand. Those, that's the diaspora. Right? There's, a, there's a Jewish diaspora today, all the Jews living outside Israel, outside the Jewish homeland. I think there's more Jews living outside Israel than there are living in Israel today. And in James's day, there was a Jewish diaspora. There were Jews living outside the Palestinian homeland. They'd be living in all kinds of countries. They'd be living in Turkey, Greece, Italy, Syria, Egypt, wherever. There plenty of Jews scattered all across the world, all across the Mediterranean world. And James is writing this letter out to those Jews outside of Israel. And so this isn't, it's important when we come to, the, to read the letter, this is not a letter to one local church. Like a lot of Paul's letters are to one congregation and he's talking about the struggles that church is having quite specifically. James is not writing to one church, he's writing to all these communities of Messianic believers scattered throughout the known world at the time. He assumed, I think, that this letter would be read and circulated pretty broadly. And so he's encouraging them generally in, in living the Christian life. He's encouraging them in their faith. He's encouraging them towards Jesus. But it's got a pretty broad readership. He's got a pretty broad audience in mind. So we haven't even dived into the body of the letter yet. But just as we, as we think about that greeting and we think about who James is, I want you just to think as we close about the person of James today. Don't think so much about the rest of the letter. We'll get into that next week. I just want you to think about James and maybe, maybe there's something from James's life that even in this early part of the series, first week of the series, we're starting out, maybe there's something from James's life that God is just wanting to press on your heart today and say, I want to produce that fruit in your life too. 
What is it about James's life that stands out to you? Maybe it's James the just. And you think about that character he had of righteousness. You think about how he was known as James the righteous, you know? And maybe God's stirring in you this morning a hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And maybe God's just giving you that desire. Maybe you've just had a really flat faith for a long time. Maybe you just had a really stagnant faith for a long time. You've just not gone anywhere spiritually. You've just got a really stale kind of faith. It's just mediocre. You're just lukewarm. And today God is just starting to stir in you a hunger for righteousness. And he's saying, I want to cultivate this in you. I want to change. I want to transform you to be like Jesus. That righteousness comes from God. It's not something we just try and will ourselves. It's not going to come through our effort. It's not going to come through just trying harder. It's coming as the Spirit works in our lives, but we've got to be open to it. We've got to receive it. We've got to participate with God in that transforming work. And maybe God is wanting to press on your heart this morning. I want you to hunger after righteousness. You know, we had James the just. I want you to become the righteous, the just. Maybe it's James's prayer life. And, and maybe your heart is just captured by that picture of James on his knees with those knobbly, calloused knees. And maybe God is just saying to you this morning, I want to call you to your knees. I'm calling you to spend some more time on your knees. I'm calling you to fight your battles there. That's where your challenges are going to be faced that's where your battles are going to be won. That's where you're going to see breakthrough. That's where you're going to see progress. It's not by running off in a million directions and trying to solve all of your problems and everyone else's problems too. It's by getting on your knees before God and seeking Him alone, seeking His power, seeking His presence, seeking the work of His Spirit in your life and in the lives of those around you. Maybe God's just saying to you this morning, it's time for you to get on your knees. I want to develop some calluses on your knees. I want to develop some hard knees because that's where you're going to be spending some time. Maybe he's just stirring your heart around the importance of becoming a man or a woman of prayer. Maybe it's James's humility. And just that idea that the brother of Jesus would start his letter by describing himself as the servant of God. And maybe that's captured your heart and you've just got the sense that God is calling you to, to humility, not running after all these great things, not, not success and not wealth, not making a name for yourself, not all these things that you've been going after, but God is just calling you back and saying, I just want you to be known as a servant of mine. Are you really willing to make yourself a slave to me, a slave of Christ? James in his letter says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And maybe God's calling you to that this morning. He's saying, put aside this pride. Pride's got a hold in your heart. I want you to put that aside. I want you to come back to a life of humility, humble service before me. Maybe it's one of those things from James's life. Maybe it's something else. But let's open our hearts to God as he's working in us to make us more, not, not making us more like James, but ultimately making us more like Jesus. That's who he's calling us to be. Let's pray together as we start out the series. Father, we come to you now and we want to thank you for your servant, James. We want to thank you for his life, God, and all the ups and downs that he experienced. But we want to thank you, Jesus, that you appeared to him after your resurrection and that he placed his faith in you and went on to write this letter that's so encouraging 
to us today and can encourage our hearts. We want to pray, Lord, that as we begin this series, that it wouldn't just be another preaching series. It wouldn't just be another church series. But God, we want to believe that you've got work to do in our lives through this book of the Bible. We want to believe, God, that you're going to speak to us through the pages of this book as you spoke to the people that James first wrote to. God, we want to expect that you want to do that and that you will do that. And even now, God, we want to be open to that. Even now, God, if you're stirring our hearts, if you're placing in us, God, give us that hunger for righteousness. Give us that desire for prayer. Give us a humble heart. God, would you work these things in us, not just to make us better Christians, but God, so that we would be more and more deeply anchored in your grace, that we would love you more and our lives would reflect the character of Jesus. Lord, we just ask for your transforming work in our lives right through this series. We dedicate it all to you now. We dedicate our journey through this book to you. We want to pray you'd change us as individuals. We want to pray you'd change us as a church community as we seek you, as we open up to you, as we pray to you as a church. Come and shape us. Come and mold us through your word, we pray. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.